My name is Paul Keel, and this is my story. My story is one of the casual Christian, the one that grew up in normal Christian upbringing, no life-shattering, come-to-Jesus moments per se. I did the routine of church, knew all the Sunday school stories, did all the youth group events and missions trips. Eventually, you do the routine of life so much that those miraculous moments that you had growing up slowly begin to be forgotten. I found myself becoming more skeptical about whether or not they actually happened, or if it was really just the ignorance of youth projecting coincidences as miracles. Then as I got older, I started seeking answers out to help me justify or reason my belief. I began to look at the full history of the church, all the splits, divisions, councils, denominations, evil things done in the name of God, etc. Suddenly in this pursuit towards truth, I noticed I felt further from God than I did before. Maybe that's why Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 1.18, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and those who increase in knowledge increase in sorrow. Maybe ignorance is bliss when it comes to faith. Maybe I wanted to find a, the reason to prove that Christianity wasn't real. Maybe I found myself impacted by the social biases of the church being this villainous organization. On the opposite end, was I succumbing to the mindset that fully forgoes the teachings of the Bible to a watered-down version hidden under the veil of God's grace with no true accountability? During this past year, God has begun to slowly show me again that even when I may not find answers to every question, which he has revealed some in the past year, that he is still at work in this world. My first moment that this happened was last year, probably at the peak of, I would say, me wrestling with my faith and closest that I have ever come to the idea of truly foregoing my faith. Um, It was a regular weekday drive home from work, Um, and the previous day I had gone to Menards and I had bought some wind straps because I needed to haul some wood, so I was like, I'll use these to strap it very vicariously to my Prius top and hopefully I make it home. So I got those, and I was going to put them in my garage to um, store away, but I had this mental note. Um, Some would call this uh, your consciousness, some a gut reaction, some the Holy Spirit, which later is what I believe it to to be, but it was actually to go ahead and leave the straps in the car. Um, The next day I was driving back home from work and had another gut feeling to instead take the outer road off of 470 by Blue Springs Lake, so I decided to do that. As I'm getting to the part of the outer road that goes downhill and away from the highway, I felt the weirdest urge saying to stop and park here on the side of the road. And not one of those subtle gut feelings, but rather very clear directive beyond my own conscious, objective rationale would normally do. Within 30 seconds of waiting, a truck on the highway pulls over to the side with a mattress flapping off the back, about to fall off. This man did not have enough straps to hold everything down, And so I realized I had those wind straps that I had coincidentally placed in the back of my car. So I grabbed those, walked over the median behind the man um, who said this, and I'll paraphrase, where did you come from? How did you know I needed this? You were like an angel out of nowhere. I smiled, nodded, and as I walked back to my car, I drove home shaking because this moment was beyond a casual Christian routine thing. This was a clear, small miracle that went beyond objective reason or rationale. The second event um, was a little bit closer. This is probably about a month ago. Um, Getting a little bit more understanding and closer to God, but still wrestling with it. And so I found myself driving on the outer road where I was praying. And God was like, if you are real, use me today however you need me to be used. 
and literally the car in front of me blows its back tire within seconds and I go and help him change that and fix that and like super crazy the part that breaks coincidence for me and it just blows my freaking mind is when I pray the exact same thing on the same road at the same 400 meter stretch two days later and another car in front of me gets a flat you can't help but begin to doubt the doubt these moments stick with me I realize even though I will continue to have questions about God and I might even forget about these and I might have more doubts the influences of the world may weigh on me without me noticing that there are actually real-world instances of God moving in this world beyond rational logic or evidence. I realize that very much there are godly things active in this world, this church, and me beyond my own skepticism and doubts. Maybe, just maybe, there really is something to the faith part of this journey. My name is Paul Keel, and this is my story. tough to follow a miracle story, except with another miracle story. Matthew chapter 2, we're continuing the Christmas story, and the main event is about to happen all in one verse. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. There it is. It just happened. The long-expected Savior of the world has come. How long-expected? Well, I have a prophecy here from what we call now Micah chapter 5 that was written 700 years before that night. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judea, or Judah back then. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you whose origins are from the distant past. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land and he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed for he will be highly honored around the world and he will be their source of peace. This is going to be great. A prince of peace to be highly honored all around the world. Who is going to come and celebrate this that has been waited for for at least seven centuries? Who will show up for this? About that time, some wise men in Greek, magi, from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Astrologers? Magicians? Foreigners? This is awkward. Astrology is forbidden in the Old Testament. We're supposed to look to God for what is to come, not to the stars. Magic is forbidden in the Old Testament. I suppose you could have a magician come to your kid's birthday party and do some card tricks, but, but that's not what these guys are practicing. And it says they come from the east. Oh, you know what's east of Jerusalem, doggone it. Enemies, Babylon, Persia, ancient enemies of Israel, people who once captured them and hauled them away into slavery. I bet these guys only know the story of the coming king. 
from stories that were handed down from the slaves they used to hold in that foreign land. This is not a good beginning to God's promise to save his people. All the wrong people are showing up for it. So they roll into town, these magicians, these astrologers, these foreigners, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And they also quote Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me, so I can go worship him too. Well, that sounds better, but it's not. Let me tell you some stories from history that come from outside of our Bible. King Herod is not Jewish. He's made king of the Jews by the Romans. They appointed him king of the Jews because he was so good at collecting taxes and banishing bandits from the countrysides when he was governor. Basically, they liked the way he can make threats and kill people. That makes him king of the Jews. The Jews don't like him. He finally gets so fed up with not being liked that he banishes his own wife and son out of the country and he marries his teenage niece because she's Jewish. And he thinks that'll make him more look, more, look more Jewish. Doesn't work. When the priest still won't follow him and give him the respect he thinks he has coming, he decides to appoint a new high priest, his brother-in-law, who is 16 years old. He thinks that'll fix him. He puts his teenage brother-in-law in charge of all the religious activities. Except, history tells us, that the kid looked like Timothy Chalamet. And the people were so corrupt that they actually threw parades and got really excited that they got to have a teenage heartthrob be the high priest of Israel. So that backfired. Now Herod's starting to wonder, what if they'd rather have Justin Bieber be king than me? So a year later, he has a big party at the palace and the high priest is walking around um, a pool where some slaves and servants are swimming and splashing around while they're waiting. It's only this deep, the pool. And they say, hey, high priest, come on in. He's like, oh, no, I'm the high priest now. I got my big get up on. I can't be splashing around the pool. They're like, oh, come on in. It'll be fun. And he's 17 years old, so why not? So the high priest gets in the pool to play with the servants, and they're splashing, and there's wrestling and horseplay, and then, oops, he drowns in 18 inches of water. Huh. One less thing for Herod to worry about. And then he starts to get nervous that that guy's sister, his current wife, she might be plotting against him too. So he has his wife murdered and three of her sons. This is the guy that the Magi just rolled into town to say, we hear there's a new king of the Jews. Where is he? And Herod says, I don't know, but when you find him, let me know. 
This is not a good beginning to God's promise to save his people. All the wrong people have showed up for it. And the right people, they're only interested so that they can kill him. What about these high priests, these teachers of religious law, the ones who actually knew the scriptures and the prophecies that told Herod that it was supposed to happen in Bethlehem? They're only using their knowledge of the Bible to cozy up to the guy in charge. They keep him in power and he keeps them in power. This is how Christmas begins. After this interview, the wise men went their way and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child and his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These astrologers who follow a forbidden star, it actually works. And it stops over the house. How does that happen? I don't know. Here's my guess. I believe they were following a planetary conjunction, similar to the one we had just last year. But theirs involved three planets at that time. Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars did come together about that time. And I believe they were following it, and perhaps maybe it finally came together and formed the star just as they were reaching Bethlehem. Maybe with Mary and Joseph's house on the horizon, right under that part of the sky. Don't know, but... The weird thing is, it worked. And these magicians, they give gifts, gold, perfume, incense. Not great Christmas gifts for a two-year-old, but very expensive. And I, I wonder if they didn't help the parents with some things they have coming up next week. And these foreign enemies, they bow down and worship the king. What's God going to do with this behavior astrologers, magicians, enemies. What's God going to do with this? When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. The second dream of our Christmas season. God speaks to them. He doesn't just speak to them. He saves their lives. You see, there isn't a wrong type of people with God. God will speak to anyone who will take an interest, who will make a journey, who will give a gift, who will worship him. And God's used to this story where the kings and the politicians and the priests gathered around them are really just in it for themselves. It was already in the Old Testament that way. God had other people who were taking an interest in him. The New Testament starts out that way. It's kind of that way today, too. Some of you that here this morning have more in common with these magi than you do any other character in the story. Some of you didn't grow up in church. You didn't grow up around faith and Christianity. Some of you really don't know much about these scriptures and what they say is to come and has happened. What you do know, you probably maybe heard as a rumor from someone you knew in the past. Some of you might even have been hostile to these scriptures in the past, the God they preach, the church they've created. 
But you're here today. Somehow you took an interest. And you made a journey. You came here. You came to the live stream. It's a short journey, but there you are. If you came to believe that Jesus is who this story says that he is, the one sent by God, would you give a gift? Some of you would. might be some of your time to serve his cause in the world, to share this good news. might be a special skill or talent that you have. You can bring something no one else can bring. It might be treasure. You know, it's a charitable financial time of year. If you came to believe these things, some of you would give a gift and worship this God. That's all he's looking for. He's certainly not looking for politicians and religious figures who surround them who are really in it for themselves. So I encourage you to keep taking an interest and keep making this journey. When the time comes, give a gift and worship him. We still have that poll up if you'd like to, to join in. There's a number to text and you type that weird phrase, mdirector057. But you put that in the body and then you're in and then the next message you send to that number, you can answer the question, what gift will you bring Jesus this year? Do this and God won't just speak to you. He will save your life. It absolutely does not matter if you've never done this sort of thing before. If you didn't grow up around this, you haven't been brought up in faith, none of that matters. Didn't matter for the Magi. You see, it turns out God's promise wasn't to save his people, Israel. His promise was to save his people. Israel was just the place where it was all going to start. If last week was about how God speaks to us, this week is about who God speaks to. And if you think God would never speak to someone like you, you're just wrong about that. His very birth begins to undo that story. There's a great uh, true story that comes from an old Presbyterian church in the 70s. Uh, The church was across the street from a college campus. And on that college campus, there was a young guy who had become a Christian. He's kind of a wild child, wild hair, ratty jeans, and he went bare feet everywhere, even to classes at school. But he'd given his life to Jesus. And one day on a Sunday morning, he was looking across the street at that old church and people were filing in. He thought, well, I'm a Christian now. I should go see what's going on in there. So in he walks, barefoot, ratty jeans, wild hair. He's there a little late um, and uh, pastor's getting ready to get up and talk. So he's going down the aisle. He's looking left and right. And the pews, they're all full. So by the time he gets all the way down to the end of the aisle, he hasn't found a seat. So... He just parks it on the floor right there in front of the pulpit. Sticks his bare feet out in front and waits for what happens next. Now, you can totally do that at a college campus fellowship. But I promise you, it never happened in this 150-year-old Presbyterian church before. And at the back of the sanctuary stood the elder. 80 years old, white hair, three-piece suit. It's the 70s, but he still wears a gold pocket watch. He sees this kid sitting down there with his crazy hair and his bare feet and the preacher's about to get up. 
And with his cane, he starts down the aisle. And everybody in the church, they're just kind of tense and embarrassed for everybody. They know this old guy. He just comes from a different time. When you didn't come into church dressed like that, and you certainly didn't act like that. And the preacher's getting ready to get up and talk, and how can he do that with that going on on the floor right in front? So they can't blame the old guy for doing what he has to do. The only sound you can hear in the church is the click of his cane as he makes his way to the end. And when he gets down to where the kid's sitting, he drops his cane with a loud clatter. And with a lot of effort, he sinks down and sits on the floor next to the kid so he won't have to sit down there by himself. The story goes that the pastor got up and said, what I'm about to preach You'll never remember what you've just seen. You'll never forget. There are no right kind of people for God. And that's a message that gives us peace. So we come this Sunday morning to light the second candle of Advent, and it is the candle of peace. Let us uh, have a moment here to reflect on the peace of Christmas and the gifts that we hope to bring Christ this year. Father, we give you our heart. We pray it is a gift of gratitude for you who gave us your very best, your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.